Corps are a good example of how companies can be more ESG focused. But the overall message is that, that all businesses and all consumers should be thinking about these topics. And so I really agree with you that, you know, no, I'm in no way saying, you know, every business or even majority businesses should be B Corps. I think that consumers should be thinking about social, environmental aspects in their decision making. And like you said, you know, going to the farmer's market and finding products that are made locally or grown locally is a wonderful thing to do. And because you're connecting with people in your community and also learning yourself and informing yourself, which will then actually help in future purchases. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello and welcome to Care More, Be Better. Every week, I invite you to care more about specific issues so that together we can grow and be better. In one of my earliest episodes, as I interviewed Eliza Erskine, we dove into what it takes to become a B Corp and why supporting them is a critical path forward to be the change that you want to see in the world. Today, we get to deepen this discovery as we get to know Christopher Marquis. Chris Marquis is the Sinyi Professor of Chinese Management at the University of Cambridge Judge Business School and the author of the award-winning book that you'll see just behind me, Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Prior to joining Cambridge, Marquis was the Samuel C. Johnson Professor in Sustainable Global Enterprise at Cornell University. And before that, he spent 10 years at Harvard Business School. His research and teaching focus on how businesses are creating a more resilient and sustainable capitalism by focusing on the elusive triple bottom line of environmental, social, and financial performance. Chris Marquis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Karina. Great to be with you. I have to say it was a little challenging for me to learn to pronounce your last name because I have French origin. So it's like Marquis is automatically <laughs> where I want to go. Well, I answered that as well. So no problem at all. <laughs> well, that's great. So I want to get started by simply helping our audience understand again what a B Corp is and perhaps more importantly, what it is not. Sure. So a B Corp is a company that is certified for its social environmental and governance performance. So companies have to go through, you know, a systematic ESG assessment of their operations, score above a certain level, and then they become a B Corp. And they also must actually change their corporate governance to be stakeholder aligned. So in the US and many countries in the world, actually companies are legally beholden to shareholders. And for B Corps, that has to be changed in the articles of incorporation of the company so that it's not just shareholders, but all stakeholders like you know, employees, community, the environment that are important. You know, B Corps, you ask also what B Corps are not. And I'm not to be honest sure exactly how to answer that because I do think actually there are tons of companies that actually, you know, they're locally focused, they have great employee benefits. So there's I guess, you know, a lot of companies that are not B Corps that are actually doing a good job too, although, you know, actually getting, I think, the third party certification to just learn about your operations for most of the companies I've talked to is usually worth it. 
You know, you brought up something just as you were defining B Corps that I think is an important subject to cover. It's actually one of the reasons that I have heard that many publicly traded companies or companies that seek to become publicly traded choose not to go to become B Corps because there are some limitations with how they operate and the sorts of things that they're accountable for. So can you help us better understand how that plays in our current infrastructure? Can a B Corp go public? Yeah, so B Corps can and are going public at record numbers. Actually, just today I was seeing my social media a B Corp that works in the waste removal business headquartered in Kentucky in the United States called Rubicon, just went public, raised $2 billion, pretty impressive. I think there's about 15 or so B Corps public in the US markets. And if you look around the world, maybe another you know, 20 to 30 places from Taiwan to Brazil to France. So there are public B Corps all over the world. You know, this is actually a really new phenomenon though. You know, when I started studying B Corps, it was, you know, 2009, 2010, and I would teach on the subject and my students would say to me, well, you know, this is good for a company like Patagonia that is basically owned by one person, but mm -hmm. actually public markets will never accept this. And this is something that I think through COVID has really taken off where investors are seeing a lot of value in companies that actually have a social mission. You know, there's a lot of academic research that shows that the more the companies sort of measure and pay attention to long-term impacts, like, you know, their employees, this actually lowers their risk. And it also actually, you know, it's an indicator of better management. So I do think this is a trend that has been changing. I think there's still a lot more that can be done. You know, in my opinion, you know, if you look at the U.S. in particular, sort of Wall Street, Silicon Valley, you know, these are tremendous, like short-term results-oriented cultures and systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a little bit of B Corps going public, I think is a good, hopefully leading signal. But, you know, really, if we're going to change the systems, a lot more needs to be done. Right. Well, I've heard some criticisms of B Corps in recent past, namely, Things like, well, I think they need to go further than they presently are, that this triple bottom line perspective doesn't necessarily build in circular economies and that we need to be focused on kind of, you know, turning capitalism on its head a little bit more to respect local communities and to ensure that we essentially have the abilities to support ourselves, even in these little microcosmic ways, especially as over the course of the last couple of years during this COVID pandemic, we've seen supply chains completely break down and shelves run bare of key items that we have come to rely on from diapers to whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's definitely something to be said that the system that we're in is in some ways fundamentally broken. And, you know, the idea of a B Corp, I think, is a positive thing that actually companies are really making an effort to actually give back to their communities and to, you know, be environmentally conscious, you know, treat their employees well. But the number of B Corps is always going to be small. I think there's about 5,000 or so, you know, and I, I don't know if it's in the U.S. or around the world, there's like 7 million companies. So it is just sort of a drop in the bucket, so to speak. But one of the reasons why I do appreciate the model, and I could say a little bit about how it can go further, because that was part of your question too, but let me First, say how what I appreciate about the model. I think that as I come to understand 
and sort of really articulate in the book, which you kindly have sitting behind you, you know, the power of the movement is that it's actually not about just growing the number of B Corps, but it's actually about creating tools and processes so that all companies can actually be better for society and the environment. So I mentioned this ESG system that they've you know, devised. You know, this is something where there's hundreds of thousands of companies that use this system to actually learn, benchmark, and become better. You know, many of the companies that have gone through the B Corp certification have told me, you know, we were really strong in our environment area, but we didn't realize that we we're actually lagging in some of our HR processes. And so this is something where I think actually digging in the operations of the company really can help you learn. And like I mentioned, this you know assessment is has a lot of benchmarking tools in it. So you can see what leading companies, most socially responsible companies are doing. Another tool are these governance tools. So actually ways if you're an LLC to amend your articles of incorporation, actually a new type of company called benefit corporations, which started in the US in 2010, the state of Maryland, you know, spread through the US. I think there's about 40 US states now that actually have benefit corporations. Most important, Delaware, which is where sort of the many large companies are sort of their legal domicile is. But this then in 2016 actually hopped across the Atlantic and Italy adopted benefit corporations, a number of other European countries, Latin America, you know, Colombia, Peru, Uruguay, maybe one or two others have adopted this. Rwanda and Africa. So this is now a new innovation in corporate governance that all companies, or excuse me, companies in four different continents can actually engage in. And in the UK, actually, there's up in the parliamentary system somewhere working its way through something called the Better Business Act, which is a fundamental sort of step change, in my opinion, in this governance model, whereby all of the other legislation I mentioned are voluntary. So if your company, my company want to become benefit corporations, we can do that. However, the Better Business Act actually changes the corporate code in the UK so that all companies by default will be benefit corporations and they'll be actually legally accountable to all stakeholders. Something similar, actually, Elizabeth Warren, when she was running for the Democratic nomination in 2020, had something called the Accountable Capitalism Act, which actually did something very similar, but it was only for the thousand largest U.S. companies. So I think it's, it's about these tools and processes. And you mentioned about it going further, but I've been going on for a while. So <laughs> I just want to flag that. I'm not trying to avoid the question. No, I think it's good. Should I just dive right into that? Or Well, I want to stop for a minute talking about benefit corporations, because sure. I think this is a really interesting development. I recently featured Yen Smallback on this show. He has a company called newimpact.care, which is really working to create a different language around this um, triple bottom line, really referring to it as more a tri-sector thing, going from public to private and also to social at the same time. So you're kind of checking all these boxes and involving, importantly, the public sector and some of your business efforts, because there are many funds available to companies, which they don't seem to necessarily know about or even plan to access. And so I think it's kind of this new stage of moving into business. And when I was in graduate school at Santa Clara University, graduating in 2021, so it's not too long ago, right? I actually took a course on social benefit entrepreneurship, and we didn't even cover benefit corporations at that time. So this seems to be really kind of new in our parlance at the time. And I am yet to fully understand 
what the difference is between a benefit corporation and a B Corp. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because actually, you know, there's a variety of these different types of corporate forms that you hear about social purpose corporation, LC3, sort of, you know, I forget what the LC3 stands for, but those other ones have sort of faded a little bit. Benefit Corporation has really taken off. I think there's, you know, over 20,000 of these globally. And the difference between a Benefit Corp and a B Corp is that a Benefit Corp is a legal form of company. So you could be a C Corp, you could be LLC, you could be a Benefit Corp. And this is something then when you file your registration, you know, documents with, you know, in the US, it's with could be with Delaware or the state where you live or some other location, or many times in Italy or other countries, there's a national bureau. So you could be a benefit corporation, sort of legally recognized as such by a government somewhere. A B Corp is a certification by the independent nonprofit B Lab. And so you have to go through this process of scoring through the ESG assessment. If a benefit corporation exists in your location, you have to be a benefit corp to be a B Corp. So that's sort of one overlap. Also, the same set of people were sort of, are sort of responsible for both. You know, B Lab actually was really influential in getting benefit corporation legislation passed, particularly in the US. So that's sort of the key differences. One is a legal type, another is a independent certification by an NGO. Very good. And one of the things I did learn was that during the pandemic, B Corp had to flex their muscles and change things too, because they used to have some bylines that essentially ensured that you were providing your employee force an opportunity to get involved with local charities and things along those lines. But for companies that went virtually exclusively remote, that was challenging to do. And so they've even amended some of how they assess a business to really move in favor of a virtual workforce, which I think is very good because if each employee can positively affect their backyard as part of their work life, that's a good thing. I mean, essentially you're telling your staff, we want you to engage with your local community in some way that matters to you. And we want to support that. So I love that part of what it takes to be a B Corp. I wish that was something that all corporations would just automatically do, but it's not the case. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I mean, one of the things you mentioned, I think that has really, and I think both inspired me and one of the reasons why I actually spent a lot of time studying this movement and writing about it is that it is ever evolving. So, you know, I described the benefit corporation laws, which we went from, you know, one US state to now many countries to now moving from voluntary to mandatory. And even the B Corp certification standards have actually undergone over time six revisions. And each time, you know, if you think about when these were first formulated in 2006, it didn't seem like that long ago. But actually, in this space, a lot has happened. Our knowledge and understanding of how to measure, how to track, how to assess has changed dramatically. A lot of it is because of actually B Lab, you know, pushing this forward. So, you know, you had a situation where maybe initially things were very rough and maybe not actually capturing things well. Next iteration, it gets better. Next iteration, you know, it gets better, you know, adapts to the changing circumstances. And here, you know, six generations in, you know, it is a pretty refined system, but always, you know, the world is changing, like you mentioned, and bigger companies are being certified, which present a lot of new challenges as well. You know, and I know there was a few recent sort of news items around like the investment industry 
you know, maybe these companies might be doing things like investing and measuring in the ESG space, but maybe they weren't considering who their clients were in social impact. And so, you know, B-Lab said, okay, we're going to put a moratorium on certifying any investment companies until we really can actually feel like we can better judge whether these companies are living up to the values of the movement. So, yeah, so it is something that it's a moving target, but hopefully getting better over time. So how do we ascertain if, let's say, these venture capital firms are greenwashing, essentially, or social washing, whatever you want to call it, when they go towards this benefit corporation or B Corp status? Yeah, so the benefit, I think this is particularly an issue to think about for benefit corporations, because typically in benefit corporation laws, there is a transparency and assessment requirement, but many times companies aren't doing that or they're not doing it in a really rigorous way. So I think that you know just because a company says the benefit corporation doesn't necessarily mean that it's really actually doing good. It could be certainly be greenwashing. And I think that you know I've started to really wonder about the use of transparency as a way to sort of get companies to not greenwash. You know, there's a sort of famous Louis Brandeis, you know, former U.S. Supreme Court justice that said transparency, or excuse me, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, by actually having transparency in the media and general public can sort of check on things, that is the way to actually make sure that companies and other entities are doing a good job. But, you know, with so much information and misinformation in our world nowadays, I think we need more than just transparency and information. We need actually to have assessments and certifications. So I think my assessment is actually the companies that have gone through the assessment by B-Lab, that is a rigorous assessment. And I have more confidence that they are not greenwashing because they've actually been assessed by a third party. And I think nothing's perfect. You know, you look at financial reporting, there's companies that there's detailed financial reporting that has to be audited. And there's companies that are come out every so often and you hear they're sort of cooking the books and are, you know, and that will happen. But I do think that actually having, you know, audit requirements, having the SEC is tremendously important in really making sure the companies are doing what they say. And so I do think that sort of getting over greenwashing, having independent verified assessment is one way to help combat that. Well, essentially what you're saying is when you move in this direction, it becomes regulated, right? Yeah, I think you need more, definitely more third party. And I think, you know, I mean, it's really a shame. I think, you know, the U.S. SEC has been attempting to introduce more ESG requirements for companies, but it's been a huge minefield from both the left and the right. I mean, the right you know, sort of is, and, you know, people like Mike Pence and other people, I think Elon Musk has weighed in on this. This is something where it's sort of like woke capitalism that we're moving the situation where companies are being asked to do all these unfair things because social justice people are just crazy or something. I don't know. But so this get riles up people on the right and on the left, you know, it is actually relatively limited what the SEC is asking companies to do. And so it's like, well, you know, actually this should go much further. And potentially this does have just a greenwashing effect because it's so limited. So it's right now a really tough thing to sort of figure out. My personal belief is it's a positive step. And this is something, you know, again, I've been studying this area for 15 years now. And I see, you know, you get sort of in some ways, you know, I don't know, with the elephant's tusk under under the tent or your toe in the door. 
and then you keep building from there. So I am in favor of the SEC being able to introduce these and still keep the pressure on for them to make sure it's authentic, to definitely make sure that they keep expanding the list. Because like you're saying, I do think that it's a situation where the government is requiring you know, these behaviors of companies is absolutely essential. Right. Well, I've been stifling a laugh since you said Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) What's the next company he's going to tweet about buying to disrupt the marketplace? You know? Yeah, and I just saw, yeah, as we're recording this today, you know, I think it was just where the uh, United, the the, the soccer, the football team, I should say. I just, I just don't think that some people should be allowed to have a Twitter account. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, as it stands now, I just, I feel like we're having a healthy discussion about where things are here. There is no perfect model. And I think that is a reality across the board. There are going to be people that take advantage of these systems. They might not have a physical presence in a state and just get certified as a benefit corporation in that state because they can, and then, you know, utilize that as some sort of feather in their cap to grow their business. But one of the things that I have a little bit of an issue with has to do with all of the third-party certifications that are being heavily marketed out there. It's As a marketer, you get to a point where it's almost like you have a badge war on your labels. You have to figure out how do you even communicate these messages. And I think part of the problem is that there isn't regulation around some of these things. Very specifically, I would point to GMOs there's a lot of movement against any mandatory GMO labeling. And so people have ignited fires with the non-GMO project and essentially gone in that direction instead. But even the non-GMO project won't certify certain ingredients, even if the documentation is good, simply because they just don't want to touch that particular area. I'll give one as a, for example, Gelatin, often used to encapsulate supplements. I'm in the supplements industry, so I know a fair amount about this. Because so many cattle are fed, you know, non-organic grains, or they can't adequately document what the cattle were fed that end up being processed for gelatin, they simply won't award a non-GMO project uh, verified seal to any product that is encapsulated in gelatin. Now, I think that's all moving in the direction of wanting to encapsulate in alternate materials. Like I work with Orlo Nutrition, we're actually encapsulating in a seaweed, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are other alternatives out there now, but they're a lot more costly by comparison. And, you know, it takes a while for a bigger business that's already established to make some of these choices. And so what ends up happening is it's the small little guys that come out with products trying to work hard to create things, as I've done with Orlo Nutrition, but the cost that you incur for each of those certifications is really high when you're at that small scale, right? Right. So it becomes something that can be a little bit untenable in the beginning. And then if the consumer is essentially guided to only choose products that bear this seal, it doesn't necessarily serve the smaller businesses that are working to come up and create really responsible products. And so one of the things I just like to tell people is that, you know, use your brain a little bit, ask a few questions. If you feel like you're getting answers that seem informed rather than dismissive, you're probably okay. We want to support local businesses. You want to support your backyard, you know, chicken farmer who's actually selling their eggs at 
the farmer's markets as opposed to an organic certified one through the grocery store shelf. And so I think if you're just really thinking about these things and you you connect with people in a different way, then you can support a local sustainable economy. You can support brands that you know and love, even sometimes if they don't bear these third-party seals. So it's just what I like to counsel people to do. You know, think critically, use your brain. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, I mean, I think about the book that I wrote and the name B Corp is actually in the title. And I think that has really hurt the message of the book. And I think people sometimes misinterpret what I'm, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I'm picking it up. Yeah. <laughs> no better uh, business. Yeah. What I'm saying. So certainly I think that B Corps are a good example of how companies can be more ESG focused. But the overall message is that, that all businesses and all consumers should be thinking about these topics. And so I really agree with you that, you know, no, I'm in no way saying, you know, every business or even majority businesses should be B Corps. I think that consumers should be thinking about social, environmental aspects in their decision making. And like you said, you know, going to the farmer's market and finding products that are made locally or grown locally is a wonderful thing to do. And because you're connecting with people in your community and also learning yourself and informing yourself, which will then actually help in future purchases. So I wholeheartedly concur with your point. Yeah, I just think it's also, it's a practical application of just not necessarily even critical thinking, but just asking questions and getting involved. I don't think it's that hard to send an email if you're confused by something. I don't think it's that hard to go to Amazon and look at a product and say, oh, well, I only see this on Amazon. Maybe it's not a responsible product. If you can't find any information somewhere else, that probably tells you that the people responsible for it may just be, you know, essentially contract manufacturer and they don't right. take any specific responsibility for the product. And so if we have that lens and we just think about things a little bit, little bit more critically, I'm not asking people to like dive into the nitty gritty the way I might. It's just a few questions can get us there. Is right. it organically grown? Great. Is it organically certified? It might not be. It's a local right. little egg producer, right? Does it contain GMOs? It might not have the non-GMO project verified seal, but if they're able to answer the questions in a thoughtful way, then you probably have the answers that you need. You know, the power of intention in building a business is also important. And I just like to support the little guys too. Yeah, totally. Sometimes there's some fantastic products produced by little guys that haven't necessarily gone through those rigors yet. So as we seek to build better businesses and a better future, I want to better understand how you believe B Corps are remaking capitalism, because that's the subtitle of your book. How are they specifically remaking capitalism? Sure. So two, you know, another word that's in the title is movement. So it's not necessarily B Corps, but it's actually really this movement around better business, which includes, you know, policymakers, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, who I talk about quite a bit in my book about the Accountable Capitalism Act, you know, lawyers and legal scholars that are advancing laws in this area investors, which, you know, many of them are actually trapped in sort of this Wall Street, Silicon Valley, you know, sort of short term ism, but a lot of them actually are trying to use their capital to create, you know, support new companies, new models. Like I mentioned, a number of these B Corps are going public now. So there's investors. So 
There's VC investors that are obviously supporting them because these are all, I think, VC funded companies, which then go public. The entrepreneurs and companies, of course, you know, that are really at the core of trying to make these models work in their company where they are responsible, inequitable, and sustainable, regenerative, you know, all of these important words that are becoming more and more defined. So I think it's about a movement that actually encompasses all of these different actors and academics, you know, myself sort of writing about this, talking to you about it on the podcast, I think it's part of this as well. And I do think, you know, this idea of remaking capitalism, I mean, some might say capitalism is a broken system, you know, we should just abandon it. I can see that, that logic. But I think also there is a lot of positives that come from, in some ways, like an economic engine that actually wouldn't be there if there was not sort of this market that existed. Like, for instance, you know, Orland Nutrition, you know, the work that you're doing around sort of creating these sort of regenerative algae-based, you know, omega-3, you know, if, if there was not a market for that, probably you wouldn't be able to do that. I can't imagine sort of the government or NGO sort of coming up with a creative system, you know, based on geothermal energy. And I'm, you know, I don't even remember all the exact details, but this is something you're covering where, it well. I mean, okay, gosh, you know, you're hired. <laughs> okay, great. Well, there is sort of creativity and innovation engine that I think actually capitalism provides, but I think that a lot of guardrails need to be created and recreated. And I think that all these actors from policy, law, investors, entrepreneurs, you know, are the ones that actually can help can help do that. You know, the last 50 years where business is really focused around shareholders has resulted in, you know, a system where there's this tremendous, you know, sort of economic inequality that's been created and wealth has been really sort of accumulated in the richest people. And I think that we need to really work as a society and business and policy to try to, you know, to try to change that. But I do think that that to sort of abandon the positives, we would lose a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, people say that capitalism is essentially, it's like a model for innovation, right? Right. Because there's so much incentive to innovate and to create something new. Right. So I'm really wondering, as we go through this entire discussion, what your thoughts are about the economic principles referred to as a donut economy. I mean, people say circular yes. too, but right. how do you see that kind of laying into our future from an economic perspective? I think the sort of the, you know, the Kate Raywar donut economy ideas are hugely important. And what I really appreciate, and I'm going to talk about it at a general level because the specifics. I know it gets really technical. I haven't reviewed it in a bit, but basically, and I think this is so ingenious, you know, this idea of a donut, you know, we have these planetary boundaries, which in some ways is the outside of the donut that we can't exceed. And then the inside of the donut, I'm not, you know, some also sort of a negative threshold that we don't want to exceed. So we want to live on the different air, you know, be it sort of carbon or inequality or whatever, within this sort of, you know, I don't know if Goldilocks is the right sort of term, but sort of this, you know, not too much, not too little, respecting mm -hmm. the planetary boundaries, but also sort of human needs. Because really much of what we're talking about, I mean, there is a tension underlying economic and social activity in the world. You know, you have an interest in growing economically, but unfortunately, in today's environment, that actually requires burning carbon in most cases. And so how do you actually balance that? I mean, in places like you know, the U.S. or Europe, 
we've grown a lot economically. We really need, in my opinion, take the lead in trying to reduce. But you look at a place like Africa or some places in Southeast Asia, you know, it's a much harder equation there because these are societies that have actually not yet had the chance to grow economically. And to say, okay, you have to not emit any carbon is seems like a little unfair given that the West, I think, you know, 70% of historical or 75% of historical carbon emissions, I can't remember it's the US or the West in general. So anyways, I guess one of the things I really like about the donut economics is that it really illustrates that there's a tension involved and also then defines a number of different areas where that tension manifest itself. And then also the idea that there are these sort of planetary boundaries that we really should not go beyond. And I think a few of them we have started to go beyond. Again, I haven't read up on it recently, but in general, I'm definitely a big fan of that work. Well, I think it's interesting too, that, you know, just in even looking at the back cover of your book, Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism, you have a quote here from Emmanuel Faber, who's a chairman and CEO of Danone. Better business is a compelling demonstration of how redefining the corporate purpose can have impact at scale. Now, I recently learned that Danone here in the States, we call it yes, Danone, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 but that yeah. they have donated or not donated, they've invested, I should say, $7 million in Alexia Akbe's company, Symbrosia, which is working essentially to create a methane emission solution by feeding cows seaweed so that they produce oh. less methane. And that is, of course, important to somebody like Dannon because their products are dairy-based, right? Lots of cows. And they're going to be incentivized to reduce their emissions imprint. And of course, if they're able to get that methane production way down, that's going to support them overall because methane is, you know, incredibly difficult to really reduce and understanding that we can't draw it down from the atmosphere, you know really it's more impactful in a way than carbon emissions are from that perspective. So I'm curious to see how some of these multinational larger corporations shift and grow with time, especially as some of these regulations become more commonplace. And also, just if I could get a feel from you, let's say, for instance, a company started as a standard S-corp or an LSE, became a corporation, whatnot, and then they then were B Corp certified. Now their state has another option of being a benefit corporation yes. now. Do they have to go through and refile or can one of these larger companies do so? Do they have to to retain B Corp status? I just don't know. I'm just curious yeah. what your thoughts are. So definitely they have to research. So if they're a B Corp, they want to retain their B Corp and if B Corp status and if their location passes benefit corporation law, they have to. You know, that's a requirement of the Mm -hmm. certification. So, and some companies in the past have actually decertified as a result of that. Mm -hmm. You know, the first benefit corporation law passed in 2010. And so there was a series of companies that, you know, started were early B Corps before there were any benefit corporation laws. And then sort of in some ways the rules changed on them. But, you know, B Lab felt that this is something that you know, you really have to make sure that your legal form and your governance is aligned with mission. Hmm. So they gave companies a long window, you know, sort of a long on-ramp, or so to speak, to do that. So four years, they gave companies. And a number of, at, at the time, the highest profile B Corps ended up decertifying because their investors, their board, 
felt that this benefit corporation's status or legal form is a little untested. You know, they were worried about it. So some examples of these were Etsy mm. was an early B Corp, Honest Company, early B Corp, Warby Parker, also another one. So the interesting thing, though, and why I think it's an important story to think about is that Warby Parker recently went public, maybe in 2021. They actually, right before going public, converted to a benefit corporation and recertified as a B Corp after not being a B Corp for probably five or six years because of this legal requirement. I interviewed them. I actually did an HBS case study on Warby Parker along and nothing to do with their B Corp certification, just with their, you know, they were early adopters, this one for one model. So I got to know some of the senior people there when they were like, you know, probably had 20 or 30 employees. And they kindly, you know, I interviewed them for this book. And they said, you know, it was about this benefit corporation change. Nowadays, you know, it was 2018 when I was writing that book or 2019 or so. They said, you know, nowadays this has been tested and we probably would make a different decision. And then as it turns out, actually, they ended up recertifying and changing right before going public because that's, you know, obviously something where, you know, once you go public, that's a big sort of change and you're presenting yourself to the public markets. So I do think that to your question about changing to a benefit corporation, it is an issue for some companies, although I think less and less so because it is something that is more and more known nowadays. I should also, and again, sort of sorry for going on. I think the Danone case, which you mentioned, and then you bear is really interesting because many times when I'm interviewing companies about work in regenerative agriculture, Danone comes up as a company that is either involved in funding or sponsoring their work. So I was unfamiliar with this work of feeding cow seaweed, but there's another dairy producer, and I'm forgetting their name. They're in the Midwestern US, and Danone has actually worked with them to create a much more regenerative system on their farms. There's an investment company called Replant Capital that is raising a $2 billion soil fund to try to help farmers get off sort of the, you know, big ag, you know, Archer Daniels, Midland, Monsanto, even though I know there's been a bunch of mergers and those companies don't exist anymore, but that's what I- Monsanto is buyer, Bayer, right? Oh, Bayer. Okay. (laughs) Got it. So yeah. So these large, you know, sort of gigantic agriculture companies that have these patented seeds, you have to buy their patented chemicals. Dow chemical. (laughs) Right. Uh, So companies get trapped, some sort of like debt trapped almost, or it should be farmers because of the system where they're sort of locked in to this, you know, having to buy these new seeds every year, having to buy the chemicals, mm-hmm. and then they sort of borrow money from these companies. And so the soil fund, which Danone is in part of uh, supporting, is to help farmers, you know, get off of this system and also help them with expertise and equipment, et cetera, to actually become much more regenerative. So, I mean, the Danone case is a really good example of how a large company can really move the needle by a lot of different actions. Well, I think I've mentioned their investment in a Alexia Akbay's farm um, right. company probably five times on five different podcasts <laughs> since it okay, happened. Okay, good, yeah. I'll um, look it up. I'll, I'll, so I'll I will gladly again. send you the press release, but if you sure. ever feel like making an introduction to Emmanuel Faber, 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 yeah. I'd love to talk to him. I had scheduled an interview with Alexia on my other podcast, Nutrition Without Compromise, so we could get into this whole reality of methane production of animals and really how we can move in a more healthy direction. Because 
the realities are that a so-called carbon negative farming future is attainable. These animals can sequester carbon and create soil right. in their excrement, essentially really help us rebuild our soil. So this whole soil fund you're talking about is quite interesting to me. I also saw that there are some pretty prominent spiritual leaders like Sadhguru out there really talking about soil now. And so the movement is even going into the spiritual realm, which is kind of amazing. I didn't expect wow. him to undertake that mantle. But if you go to Sadhguru's Twitter feed now, that's like the entire backdrop is all about that. Wow. So we're going to make what? At least a billion climate activists over the course of the next few years, because it's not getting cooler anytime soon. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I've so enjoyed this conversation, and I know I could keep recording forever, yeah. but I just want to ask you before we prepare to wrap: sure. if there's a question that you wish I'd asked that I haven't, and if there is, you could ask and answer it, and if not, you could leave us with some closing thoughts, perhaps just about your book or your work. Sure. I mean, you've hit a lot of really interesting questions and I appreciate you, you know, sort of pushing me and being sort of provocative because that's, I think, the most, you know, I've answered a lot of this, you know, standard questions a lot. So it was a really, you know, fun and interesting conversation. I mean, I think that in closing, my message is that we all, as listeners of this podcast, consumers, you know, really need to be very conscious in our decisions. And, you know, like we discussed, like you illustrated very nicely, I thought, Karina, it doesn't have to have all the certifications that people should use their logic and brain and shop locally, talk to the people who are producing and, you know, think about because really, if you, you know, the money that we spend is the most important force that we can have for making the world better. And so I think that, you know, all of us as, as listeners, as podcast, I hope that we'll be more and more uh, conscious consumers in the future. It doesn't have to be hard either. That's the point I like to make. Right. Like you could just use common sense to a certain extent, ask a few key questions and just, you know, don't buy the cheapest thing on the shelf just because it's the cheapest. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to encourage everybody here to go ahead and connect with you, Chris. They can find you on your website, which is chrismarquis.com. That's C-H-R-I-S. M-A-R-Q-U-I-S.com. His book is there, other ways to reach him, some connection to his writing. I've even had the pleasure of being featured in a Forbes article you wrote. So I want to thank you again for that. That yeah. really was a proud moment for me. It was my first Forbes feature. <laughs> my pleasure. It's been great talking. Really enjoyed it. Fantastic. I'll be sure to include links to Chris Marquis's work along with show notes as always. To view the complete transcript of our conversation, you can go to caremorebebetter.com. You can also review this podcast episode on YouTube. You can even subscribe there and be alerted to the next one to drop. From time to time, I also do live stream interviews and answer community questions. You can and should let me know what you thought of today's episode. What did you love? What did you hate? I can take the criticism too. You can even leave me a voicemail by tapping that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner, or you can just send me an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have for me or for Chris Marquis about his work. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even create better businesses. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. 
To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 